Well, good evening. Please be seated. Our scripture tonight is Obadiah, verses 11 through 14. Obadiah, 11 through 14. This is God's holy word. Please give careful attention to the reading of it. Obadiah, 11 through 14. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. Startled awake by a knock at the door, a man rubs the sleep from his eyes, squints to look through the peephole for friend or foe, and sees his brother. He opens the door immediately, and with a countenance as serious as death, his brother says, I need your help. I can't tell you what it is. You can never ask me about it later, and it's going to be dangerous. Pausing for the briefest moment to process his brother's request, he responds, whose car are we going to take? Now, whether that man is about to help his desperate brother, whether it be brave or foolish, or whether his brother's circumstances were his fault or not, what's clear is that this man has the instincts of a true brother. Now, siblings and friends who are like siblings are, of course, masters of busting each other's chops. Even in the midst of redemptive history's climactic plot twist where the Messiah's tomb is found empty, John the Apostle is is compelled to slip a jab in at Peter and enshrine in Scripture that he outran Peter in a foot race to the tomb. And you know the first time Peter read John 20, verse 4, he thought, John, my brother in Christ, you punk. It's expected that this is how brothers act. He will occasionally slug bug you a little too hard. A brother will laugh rowdily when he blue shells you in Mario Kart. But a brother can also usually be counted on to have your back when it really matters. Esau, though, was not one of those whose car are we taking kind of brothers to Jacob. And tonight, we'll see what kind of brother he was. And will help us to understand why the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would humiliate and decimate Edom, as described in verses 1 through 10. Edom was the kind of nation that sees a group of ill-intentioned dudes encircling his brother nation and has no sense of kindred responsibility whatsoever. He seems more interested in anything other than his brother's burden. In verse 11, we read that Edom is aloof. He is indifferent. His sin is that of neglect and abandonment. Everything it means to be righteous and obey God is wrapped up in understanding the various relationships in our lives and our obligations therein. What is my relationship to God? What are the expectations that I have a right to regarding the way that God will treat me, and what are my obligations in that relationship? What obligations and expectations should I have in my relationship with my parents 
and my children, my pastor and my elders, my governor, my president, my boss, my spouse, my neighbor, and my siblings. So often we think of sin as merely not hurting others, as not doing to others as we would not have them do unto us. But our sins of omission are often outweigh our sins of misconduct toward others. Edom exemplifies the sin of abdicating responsibility for his brother. Perhaps to some degree he felt justified, because the phrase, on the day, reminds us of the context of Judah's calamity. When on the day is used repetitiously in connection with calamity, it's a reference to the day of the Lord. We see this in places like Zephaniah 1. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry. And Isaiah 2. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of man shall be humbled. And the Lord alone will be exalted on that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, and against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. So the descendants of Jacob are experiencing a type of the day of judgment. On Sunday, we too are experiencing a day of the Lord that also points forward to the day of the Lord's return. And yet our calamity of sorts takes place in the safety of the pews, in the comfort of the covenant of grace, without dread of the curse of the law or guilt of falling short in it. But nevertheless, God is working within us, putting to death our old man, convicting us of sin, calling sin, sin, leading us through mercy to trust more deeply in God and to walk in greater obedience to him. It's an odd thing that we do. As we come together on the first day of the week, we don't come to church to be entertained, but rather soberly to be grounded afresh in grace, to be refined in the refiner's fire, to rest in Christ's work and all the promises that are ours as his inheritance, as our inheritance, and to be stirred up to good works through the rest of the week. Judah was experiencing a day of the Lord in their exile as well. And while it was more severe in its nature, they still didn't suffer like the world will in the great day of the Lord. God's purposes of of mercy and redemptive hope still ran as a silver lining through Judah's hard providence. A good brother would see that suffering, even suffering his brother brought on himself and desire to carry some of that burden for him. But instead, continuing in verse 11, On the day that strangers carried off his wrath and foreigners entered his gates and and cast lots for Jerusalem, you, that is Esau, were like one of them. When Judah truly felt the need for brotherly aid, Edom just sat back and watched. Feeling no more obligation to step in and help than one feels watching the protagonist struggle in a TV show. But even this redemptive historical season finale of sorts would not jar Edom from its passivity. And for that, the Lord would make Edom like next season's finale. Parallels then are manifold between what Edom watched Judah endure here and what we saw in verses 1 through 10 that Edom will endure. For that reason, 
when we read of Judah's wealth being taken captive, some scholars will take the liberty of translating this wealth as leaders. This recalls from verses 8 and 9 that the wise among Edom would be captured or defect to foreign nations, and the military heroes would be reduced to cowardice. The enemy was within the gates, the kings, princes, and nobility and civil servants were gone, and the remaining population and all its resources were defenseless. Everyone and everything in Judah was treated as spoils of war, most of it going to Babylon and the rest being divvied up by the casting of lots among Babylon's allies. And Obadiah is saying that while Edom's lack of participation in the battles may not have put them in line to receive Judah's spoils, their aloofness in watching all of this happen to their brother makes them just as culpable as if they had cast lots themselves. As we move into verse 12, the heart of Edom is opened up to us, and we see a progression in the wickedness of his intentions. And as with the heart of Cain against his brother Abel, we see that abdication of my responsibility to be my brother's keeper does not leave a mere vacuum of feelings for the one that I neglect. Relationships I neglect are stripped of their joy, and they become a burden. There's this person in my life that I'm linked to and yet I don't care for, and so I'm just watching them, seeing their successes and not rejoicing with them, watching their failures and not hurting with them, And so other opinions and feelings for them fill that void. Verse 12 begins, But do not gloat over the day of your brother and the day of his misfortune. More literally, it could read, Do not look at or stare at. Edom may seem like he's aloof and distracted with other priorities, but he's actually not as unaware as he seems. He's not just looking through Judah, spacing out and daydreaming. He's watching intently, with clever and knowing eyes, but doing nothing. His gaze is not one of obliviousness. He is like Cain, watching his brother with a competitive intent, despising his successes, envying the birthright that he feels should have been his. He's counting Judah's assets and perceiving that Judah's misfortune may present a strategic geopolitical opportunities for Edom. And since at this particular time, moment in time, Jacob's birthright doesn't seem to be everything it was cracked up to be, Esau is cracking a crooked little smile. Now this gloating smirk is the first of eight prohibitions that Obadiah introduces us to here. Eight persecuting attitudes and actions against God's people that stoke the flames of divine indignation. In a sense, these are condemnations of what Edom has already done. And so some translations, like the King James, will render these prohibitives like, you should not have looked on the day of your brother. You should not have done this or that. Edom is a type of the world, though. Like uh, that line of the seed of Satan, uh, uh, like Cain, that kingdom which throughout the ages has stood in contrast and opposition to the kingdom of God. We'll see this next time we get in, when we get into verse 15, which uses Edom as a warning to all the nations. There is no shelter for any nation from the day of the Lord 
outside the spiritual family of Abraham, who Jew or Greek, circumcised or not, trust God, and are accounted righteous through Christ. Therefore, mere past tense prohibitives do not capture the meaning perfectly well here. We might instead think of them saying, this is not how it's done. This isn't it. Brothers do not treat brothers this way. Indeed, no one in the brotherhood of mankind who are all made of the image of, in the image of God should treat the children of God, his special treasure, like this. There is a sort of brotherhood that applies to all people, but only those united with Christ, like Abraham was, by faith in the shadows of Christ, or like we are, by faith in the more fully revealed Christ, only those of like faith with Abraham did he give the right to become children of God. So these prohibitions apply to past persecutors of God's people and future. Continuing in verse 12, the second prohibition is, do not rejoice over the people or the sons of Judah in the day of their ruin. This word for rejoice is not meant to only convey a silent internal schadenfreude, that unique German term we talked about last time for the pleasure that one may derive from another's misfortune. This is a step up from that. Edom is unashamed to give a vocal yes. Esau is comfortable letting others see and hear his disgusting, emotional outburst of happiness on the day of his brother's ruin. He is tickled with delight. This is in stark contrast to the visceral, emotional response that Obadiah had in verse 6 to the vision of Edom's utter destruction, where even during that time in the Old Testament church's past, where imprecatory prayers were appropriate, the prophet's response was one of shock and pity, almost wishing that Edom had been pillaged by earthly burglars where something might have remained. But the enemy that Edom will face through the providence of the nations, joining against them would be the Lord, not just earthlier plunderers, and it would be complete. So while the ruin of Esau evoked a mournful sigh from Obadiah, the ruin of Jacob evoked a fist pump from Esau. Could anything paint a clearer contrast between the dispositions of these, that these two brothers had for one another? The next prohibition is, do not boast in the day of distress. This is a similar emotional response to gloating, but linguistic parallels with Ezekiel 35 clue us into a nuanced meaning here that, again, escalate the level of depravity that Edom is expressing. See, it would be one thing if Edom had a, a kind of secular, historic perspective on its kinship with Israel we might think of how we live in a post-Christian modern world, and so those who persecute the church are certainly under the sway of the enemy, but it's not always a high-handed, self-aware persecution of God's people. Persecution is not always brazenly, overtly satanic. Sometimes people just smell the fragrance of Christ on us, and they don't know what it is, but it rubs them the wrong way, and because they are by nature rebels against God, they don't like it. And we might think, well, maybe Edom is like this. Maybe they've fallen away from really believing they have a true divine ancestral kinship with Israel. But this is not the case. Listen to Ezekiel 35. <clears throat> because you, Edom, said, 
These two nations and these two countries, that is, the northern and southern kingdoms, shall be mine, and we will take possession of them, although the Lord was there. Therefore I, as I live, declares the Lord, I will deal with you according to the anger and envy that you showed because of your hatred against them. I will make myself known among them when I judge you, and you shall know that I am the Lord. I have heard the revilings that you uttered against the mountains of Israel, saying, They are laid desolate. They are given to us to devour. And you magnified yourselves against me with your mouth. That's that linguistic link to Obadiah. And multiplied your words against me. I heard it. Thus says the Lord God, While the whole earth rejoices, I will make you desolate. So I will deal with you. You shall be desolate, Mount Seir, and all Edom, all of it, when they will know that I am the Lord. Edom did not just have ancestral memory loss or a fading belief in the God of their ancestors. Their understanding of the theology and their doctrine of the church was certainly a far cry from the Westminster standards, but they knew that their brother was under the heavy hand of God, and they loved it. And in his twisted schemes, Esau's eyes flickered green, and he considered this to be just the opportunity that he had been waiting for to pounce and to pry his precious birthright back from his tricksy brother's hand. Next, we learn that Edom did not just hang back after all. He did not only salivate at the opportunity to cast lots himself for Judah's treasure. Verse 13, Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity, and do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Esau got his hands dirty. He followed behind the nations that got inside the gates, and he did what he could to clean out or leverage anything left that his brother had. Jacob was nothing to him but an asset column. He hoped to transfer anything he possibly could from his brother's ledger to his. Interestingly, the word for distress looks just like Edom, but without the vowels. There's likely a wordplay here reminding the reader once more of the flip-flop that will happen when Edom will be the one in distress. This is reminiscent of the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, where Lazarus is at Abraham's side in the next life, but the rich man is in Hades and is told, Remember that you, in your lifetime, received your good things, and Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. Finally, in verse 14, we see the apex prohibition, which serves to inform us of the ultimate stage of Edom's brotherly betrayal. Do not stand in the crossroads. That is, do not stand in the escape route to cut off his fugitives, meaning Judah's fleeing refugees, and do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. With virtually all of Judah's assets and trinkets picked clean and distributed, the last dollar signs that remained for Esau to chase were the survivors and refugees attempting to flee through whatever pass they could find out of the land of milk and honey and away from Babylon and its allies. As they tried to get themselves and their families anywhere but there, Edom posted its soldiers at every possible exit, snatched up anyone trying to escape, and handed them over to the highest bidder. Edom was like Joseph's brothers, 
who had enough of Joseph had had enough of Joseph's dreams and enough of his favored position in the family and before God, and they and so they debated murdering or selling him and decided on the latter. Only Edom didn't really have to choose between the two. He could do both. He would sell the brothers he could make a profit from and murder the rest. Edom felt no responsibility to treat Judah as precious to God, as kin, or even as human. They were nothing but a reminder that for reasons Eden did not understand, Jacob God has loved and Esau he has hated. One of the things Esau could not understand was before him as plain as the nose on his face, while his brothers were suffering a type of the day of the Lord for, his un- for their unfaithfulness to God. Esau did not understand that neither brother deserves God's favor. These two brothers were both an absolute mess, both rebels by nature, both stiff-necked, both deserving of God's wrath. Israel, apart from the grace of God, would have all the same wicked intentions these eight prohibitions illuminate, as would we. So there's only one pure good intention that shines through all of this darkness, which is that what Cain, what Joseph's brothers, what Esau meant for evil, God meant for good. The nations God used to humble God's people meant evil for them, but God meant it for good. God meant it to rid them of any hope they had in themselves being justified by the law, by their own obedience. And the exile is just a taste of what all who break the law of God deserve. One sin has eternal ramifications because the God who beholds it is eternal. The repugnance of it is ever before him unless somehow some man could take the kind of eternal, uh, could make some kind of eternal appeasement of God's justice But what man could make such an eternal judicial appeasement and emerge successful? The exile could stir such contemplations of the law and their inability to keep it, and perhaps they might recall that Abraham was somehow accounted as righteous before even being circumcised with the law. Furthermore, God even meant the devastation of Esau for good as well. God meant to make a demonstration of them, of what more than just a taste of the day of the Lord would look like. But why would Esau receive unchecked decimation from the Lord while the calamity upon Jacob would stop short of utter ruin? Why would Jacob be left a remnant? Why would a diaspora remain? Why would the promise of destruction of Edom even be given to them? Why would any hope at all be extended to this brother when both deserve the wrath of God. It is because Jacob had another brother the whole time. Jacob had a brother who he did not even need to knock at his door in the middle of the night and ask help of. This brother showed up, unrequested, unexpected, and he didn't ask whose car are we taking because he already had a car and he told Jacob, hop in. I am going to take care of all the troubles that are closing in on you. And by the way, I know that most of these troubles are your fault. But I am your brother, and I am in this with you. This brother is not like Esau. He is at peace with God because he is God in the flesh. His brothers, This brother does not see Jacob as competition for God's favor, 
This brother is the only begotten Son of God, in whom the Father is well pleased. He is truly man, and so truly a brother to Jacob and to all who trust in him, and yet he is also the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And because he was made like us and is still the eternal Son of God, this brother could take that eternal punishment that Jacob and you and I deserve and emerge victorious. He could rise, the firstborn of many brothers, and he could sit down at the right hand of the majesty on high and continue to be the perfect brother, always having our back as our advocate. Everything this brother does comes from a place of contentment and love. He has nothing to prove, nothing to fear, and having this easy yoke and light burden, he is free to take on the yoke and the burden of his brothers. He does not watch us as if aloof while really bitterly plotting that he can, what he can get from us. This brother has his own birthright, that he has never forsaken or sold. He does not gloat or take pleasure in us receiving chastening for our sins or persecution from our enemies, but is instead, but instead sees them as burdens that he can take upon himself for us. And praise God that he did indeed take them upon himself for us. This brother drank of the cup of the wrath of God in Jacob's place and in our place. And he endured the scorn of those who hate God and his people. He allowed himself to be mocked, letting his enemies surround and seemingly conquer him, and even cast lots for his garments, as Jacob had his cast. And rather than stand at the exits and trap his brother, he went to the exits and used himself as a shield so that we might pass behind him from all of our enemies. Praise God that in those narrow straits where all hope seemed lost and the law and the enemy blocked our only escape, our brother Jesus allowed himself to be riddled with the arrows of the curse of the law and the senseless persecutions of the seed of the serpent. This is our brother Christ. May we ever be grateful that he is what he has saved us from and may we trust that he will always have our backs even to the end of the age and may we better seek to understand and take deeper responsibility for the various relationships that God has placed in our life and all for his glory. Amen.